pro bike racing. There's no sport quite like it, and it's already time for the first Grand Tour of 2023, the 106th Giro d'Italia. Here's the news. The Giro gets going, but COVID threat looms large. Russia and the Women's World Tour, the strange case of the disappearing general. Nine lives, how Antonio Tiberi killed a cat and got a new job. The Vuelta Femenina, Big Bang or Grand Tour Ball? Hello there, welcome to the first ever episode of Radio Cycling, a new show where we bring you the key news stories within professional bike racing, all wrapped up in a fast-moving 30 minutes, and brought to you in partnership with Sigma Sports. From a new road bike to a wardrobe refresh, Sigma Sports keeps you moving, whether you're a commuter, racer or social rider. At Sigma Sports, you get the products you want from the brands you love. With fast shipping, easy returns and industry-leading customer service, shop in-store or online at sigmasports.com. My name's Jeremy Whittle and I'm joined by our Permatan newshound on the sunny Costa Blanca, Chris Marshall-Bell in Valencia. Hello, Chris. Hello, Jeremy. And also by the press room's answer to Sam Allardyce, the grizzled veteran of many a wild mountain pass, Peter Cossins. Hello there, Pete. Hello, Jeremy. So, yes, it's Giro time. Here at Radio Cycling's global news hub, the excitement is boundless, even if the 2023 Giro, which starts in the Abruzzo region this weekend, is, incredibly, it seems, rolling away from the start ramp under a Covid cloud. So, Pete, let's come to you first. What's been the main news on the eve of the race? Set the scene for us on the first men's Grand Tour of the year. Well, it's uh, there's, there's, there's been major problems for, for Jumbo Visma, who were uh, one of the the teams that are with their leader, Primus Roglic, who are favourites for the title. And to be honest, it's all been a bit like uh, that cobble stage of the Tour de France last year when Jumbo Visma's riders played do do with their bikes on uh, after Jonas Vingegaard punctured <laughs> on, the, on the pave. Um, COVID had an impact coming out of the Ardennes Classics and coming into the Tour of Romandie, which was last week. Uh, Trek lost their leader, Giulio Ciccone, um, he's he's not he's not starting the um, he's not starting the Giro, and Jumbo Visma have been the worst affected. First of all, they lost uh, Robert Haysink and Tobias Foss. They were replaced by Jos Van Endem and um, by Rowan Dennis. Then Van Endem himself was had to be replaced as he came down with COVID, and he's now been replaced by Sam Oman. I mean, to be honest, it's been a bit of a complicated start for Roglic. You said that hopefully this will be the end of his problems. So in so in some ways, this, it, has a substitute ever been substituted before the race started? That, I can't remember that happening before. I mean, it's, it's it's a bit unusual, isn't it? I mean, it's it's quite unusual in football, I suppose. I mean, you'd see maybe a, a player come on in the first few minutes and get substituted near the end. But I mean, it's it's quite an incredible situation, and um, I guess it sums up the uh, the issue that or the the problem that COVID is going to continue to play or the. the continue to cause within the sport over over the next months and over the next years that it's, it's going to be a factor that teams will have to um, take into account in terms of bringing in substitutes or losing riders during races I mean we saw UAE were really badly affected during last year's race and um, Taddy Pogacar lost two of his riders to COVID during last year's race including George Bennett and it's something that's that's not going to go away. 
So what what's the thinking then? Is is this kind of down to just bad luck, or is it you know poor management, poor hygiene practice? Have people let standards slip since the pandemic? Uh, well, Jumbo Visma haven't. I mean, it's it was noticeable when. Uh, I mean, it's been a while since I've I've been on a race this season, but I was I was at Paris Nice back in back in March, and uh, I mean, it, it's incredibly notable then how how keen they were to make sure that people were wearing masks at press conferences. When Vingegaard did his press conference, everybody had to wear a mask. Um, even when you were around the bus, they were keen on people um, staying in the distance. I mean, they were much more um, assiduous than other teams in kind of ensuring that distances were, were, were kept, that, the, that there was no chance of, the, uh, of, of, of COVID being passed on. And so it's a bit bizarre, really, I suppose, or a bit odd that, um, that Jumbo Visma have been the team that have caught, been caught out by this. Well, it's a time trial heavy Giro that builds up to a mountain race of truth on the final Saturday that will no doubt be giving Roglic deja vu and maybe even nightmares given his past experience of mountain time trials on the final Saturday of a Grand Tour. Chris, can you tell us some more about this dreaded race against the clock on Monte Lusari? Absolutely, Jeremy. Some would say it's a dreaded race against the clock. I would say it's a hideous climb that has gone straight to the top of my bucket list. It's an 18k time trial. The first 11k's are predominantly flat, and then the final 7.3k's have been described by the Giro as terribly steep. But that doesn't really do it justice. The first five kilometers average 15%. There's a maximum gradient of 22%, and then even though it lessens out towards the top, there's another final kicker of 22%. It's like a climb plucked straight from Asturias or the or the Basque Country in Spain. It's uh, it's it's quite hideous, and it's. It's also extremely unknown. You can't even find it on Google Maps. It's really close to the Slovenian border, but it's essentially a forest road that's only just recently been resurfaced. And I think it's not hyperbole to say that this will have a, a significant a significant outcome on the race overall, even if it does come so late. Interesting. So, so if Roglic had to design his worst penultimate stage this would probably be it wouldn't it given what happened to him on La Planche de Belfield in in 2020 well yes and no I mean yes as you alluded to he might have some nightmares going into that stage but it's extremely close to the Slovenian border so he's not going to be short of any fans by the roadside but there is a bit of a twist Jeremy because reports from Italy in the last two three days suggest that the UCI needs some clarifications from RCS the race organisers about the logistical issues on the climb. So it's already been reported that mechanics will have to be on motors with spare bikes. I'm intrigued to see how that's going to work. But apparently there are some issues around whether each rider will have motor assistance. So maybe we won't even get to reach this stage. I hope we don't reach that. But but yeah, it would be fantastic to see in just over in just over three weeks' time. So while Monte Lusare looks like it will be a thrilling climax to the Giro d'Italia, there's obviously lots of other mountain stages. Um, there's Trecimi di Lavaredo, there's the Gran Sasso, there's also Val di Zoldo. There are a lot of climbs in this race. But notably, there are nearly 60 kilometres of time trialling in the first half of the race. How do we think um, the time trials, which I know Remco Evenepoel um, is focusing on, very heavily. How do we think the time trials are going to impact on the race, Pete? Well, Remco's been very forward in saying that um, he wants to he wants to go straight into the pink jersey on on today's Saturday's opening stage. Um, it's a, a 19 kilometer or best part of 19 kilometer time trial. 
pretty pretty flat it'll suit him perfectly as a ruler i mean it'll suit it'll suit roglic and a lot of others i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of strong riders in there we've got Filippo ganna stefan kung so i mean Evanapol isn't going to walk into the pink jersey by any means but it's certainly it's certainly going to help him i mean i guess the the, the question is about Evanapol. he's he's ridden the giro before didn't finish um i mean he's since then, he's he's come back and he's won the Vuelta. He's recently won the Liege Bastogne Liege. But the Giro is um, when you kind of read all the build up and you kind of listen to a lot of the build up. The riders and ex riders are kind of unanimous in saying it's the hardest Grand Tour of the season. Not in terms of the pressure; they all say the Tour's the the biggest race in terms of pressure. But the Giro is the hardest race in terms of like an athletic test. And this is a, this is a key issue that Avenipol's had a problem at the Giro before. We've um, we've got a lot of really really tough mountain stages in the in the past in the last week especially. I mean the Giro is known for unpredictable weather. We've I mean some of the passes are still snowed in; they're not clear yet. I saw pictures of the Grand San Bernard the other day. I mean there's still four meters of snow up there. I mean it's 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 pretty crazy at the moment in terms of um, the amount of snow that's on some of these passes. So while the Giro gets going, we have also been investigating the strange case of the vanishing Russian general racing in the Women's World Tour Peloton. Chris, this is a fast-moving story, and it's one that you've been really across in the last last few days. Can you bring us up to speed? Yes, Jeremy, this is a strange story, as you certainly alluded to there, and it's one that I have been investigating all week. Maria Novolutskaya, better known as Masha, is a 23-year-old Russian rider for the British women's continental team Life Plus Wahoo, who raced in the Women's World Tour last year for UAE Team ADQ. She won a bronze medal in the Madison at the Tokyo Olympics. I have discovered that since 2020, Masha has been and continues to be funded and supported by the Central Army Sports Club in Russia, a sports club whose official title is the Federal Institution of the Ministry of Defence of the Russian Federation, CSKA, and has many links to the Russian state. Masha is listed on the CSKA's website as an ensign, essentially a low commissioner officer, while I found countless articles listing her as an army cyclist. This is important, Jeremy, because it was just three days ago that the UCI, cycling's governing body, updated its regulations for Russian and Belarusian athletes, stating that riders who are or who have been contracted to the Russian or Belarusian military, including any affiliated entities, cannot participate in events on the UCI international calendar. Wow. Okay. Well, that that is... That is... A major story then, isn't it? And and it's, it's very interesting as well that um, people seem to be quite shocked by this revelation as well because you, you've spoken to her team, haven't you, to Tom Varney. So let's listen to what he has to say. We've done our due diligence, so we've met all the UCI rules to date and we'll continue to do that within the new rules. And we believe Masha has also done that. It sounds like a bit of a cop-out possibly, but it's, it's the facts. We're very sensitive to the whole situation yeah, we can only play within those rules if that makes uh, makes sense. We've, I believe, when I speak to her, that she doesn't support the war. I, like I said yesterday, I probably think she's probably been ill-advised to some extent when she got to Olympic fame and Olympic medal. Obviously, any nation is proud of their Olympians. Yeah, there's probably some links there that haven't done her personally justice, but. It also, like I said, it also looks like if she's going to continue racing for us and then the UCI race, then those links probably need to be um, stopped. That's Tom Varney. And obviously, 
in his role as a manager who's been, I suppose, confronted by this news from you, Chris, he, he does sound quite shell-shocked. He was, yeah. I, I informed him of this news on Tuesday and he was, as you say, quite shell-shocked. This was all a new development to him. He has been in constant discussion with myself, with the UCI and with Masha since I alerted this to him on Tuesday. I think it's worth saying that even though Masha did not respond to an interview request from myself, she has told the team that the Ensign title is honorary and it means nothing to her. She's also told the team that when she returns to Russia later in May, she will attempt to withdraw her membership of the CSKA. So what will happen in the next few weeks will determine how this story moves on. You know, will Masha be granted neutral status given her historical and potentially current links to the Russian army? What will happen in the meantime? Will her license be revoked. I understand the team may pull her from the upcoming Itzulia Basque country. And there's also wider questions for the UCI. You know, why did the UCI not know about this? Why was this information not declared before? And looking at the team, you know, this is a well-loved British team, previously known as Drop Cycling, run by Devani, son and father. And what will happen to their sponsorship going forward? How will Life Plus and Wahoo respond to this as well? So this is, as you say, you know, this is only a small woman's team, but this is quite a major story. Well, given given the associations between kind of um, the level of sanctions that have been imposed on the Russian state and general public feeling about the Ukrainian war, about uh, the war in Ukraine, you'd, you'd imagine it's not going to play well for them, would you, Pete? I mean, you'd imagine that that this is not going to not going to go away that easily. No, I don't think it is. Uh, I think it's. Um, I, I feel I feel bad for for Life Plus actually because they've obviously picked up a rider who was who was riding on uh, on the World Tour with uh, the UAE back team last season. So I mean, they they obviously assume that because she'd ridden there and she rode a lot of big events for that team last year, that her status was fine. And it's um, it's come under the radar, I suppose. They 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 didn't know that there was an issue. They assumed there wasn't an issue. And you're right, it's not going to go away. I mean, and, and rightly it shouldn't. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Tom Varney said that they've done their due diligence. Well, they probably need to look at that again because if they've done their due diligence and this is news for them, then that doesn't bode well for their due diligence or, or, their, or their internal processes. Anyway, obviously we'll be following the wider implications of that story closely. But in another extraordinary turn of events... The 21-year-old Italian rider Antonio Tiberi seems to have found a new sponsor only a few days after he was sacked by Trek Segafredo, World Tour team, for shooting a cat with an air rifle. Pete, I love animals, and this guy's been called a cat murderer. So I know to some this may be a funny story, a daft story, but the animal was a much-loved family pet. So which teams are thinking of taking him on? Just give a, a quick review of the story. that the Tiberi, who's... Uh... He was uh, the world time trial champion in, in Yorkshire in 2019. So, I mean, he was obviously a rider that was very highly prized. Uh, Trek signed him. Lives in San Marino, uh, a country or an enclave with, completely within, within Italy. And he shot uh, last year, this was, in, in June last year, he shot uh, the cat of a for, or the Minister of Tourism and a former head of state of San Marino. And Tiberi said in his defence when, when the story came out earlier this year in February that uh, he was actually just trying to test the range of, of his weapon and didn't realise it was a, a, a lethal, lethal weapon that he was, uh, he was using. Um, I mean, unfortunately, the, the, the cat died, but obviously Trek then suspended him. 
And then uh, in April this year, Trek put out a statement saying they, was, they were then sacking him because, in quotes, his actions during suspension didn't m- meet our criteria for return to competition. I mean, the team haven't specified what that is, but they released him immediately. And you can imagine, as, as a former world champion, even albeit at junior level, Tiberi is still a prize rider. And, and our latest information is that he'll be riding for Bahrain victorious before too long. I think Chris has got more details on that. Yeah, that's correct. Speaking with a few sources in the last seven to ten days, I understand that Tiberi will be joining Bahrain victorious quite soon. Although yesterday in a statement, Bahrain told me that the team is focusing on the Giro at the moment. We are having conversations with a couple of agents and some riders, but we won't talk about any transfers now. It's interesting that there's been quite a quick solution or there will likely be a very quick solution to uh, to this transfer saga. I think many people would have expected Tiberi to maybe drift away from cycling given their negative headlines, but it appears that Bahrain are not too bothered about any negative press that will come with signing Tiberi. But I do also think it's worth highlighting some of the things that he has done in the last two months. I mean, he's been very apologetic on social media. I also know that an Italian TV crew went with him to to a special cat home in Rome where he was seen picking up the cat litter and caring for the cats. And he also went with his father, who said something quite heartbreaking on Italian TV, saying something along the lines of, I have my son, I'm extremely proud of him, but now he is a criminal, which is quite heartbreaking, to be honest. But yeah, it feels like there's a bit of a positive end, at least to him and to his family, to this story, and we will see him back in the world to a peloton sooner rather than later. Well, that's a bizarre story, and let's hope he never picks up an air rifle ever again because obviously that was an incredibly stupid and immature thing for him to have done. Um, why he couldn't have just shot at a few tin cans to check the range, we'll never know. Anyway, let's move on. Our final talking point of this first episode of Radio Cycling is the inaugural Vuelta Femenina in Spain, which is being raced this week, but which to date, my impression, doesn't quite seem to have caught the public imagination. Chris, obviously you live in Spain. What's the reception been to this new race so far? I think your assessment is pretty much on the money. Like you say, I live in Spain and no one is talking about it. I picked up uh, a few newspapers yesterday. It was nowhere to be seen. When I was with my cycling club just on Tuesday, people were, were preferring to talk about seeing Alejandro Valverde on Sunday as opposed to the race which was happening just two hours south of Valencia. And I think I think this is because of a number of reasons. Now, obviously, the Women's Vuelta has been around for six or seven years. This is the first time it's been held over one week. But it just hasn't cut through to the public, to the public space as much as the Tour de France Farm or the Giro has. And it's also its position on the calendar. It came straight back out of the Spring Classics and particularly the Ardennes Classics. We've got the Giro in July, followed by the Tour. So they are naturally bigger targets. So the riders have not targeted the Vuelta as they have some other key races in the year. So just it hasn't had that same build-up, that same excitement. And I think it's paying for that, if I'm totally honest. I mean, is this a part of the kind of over the overly rapid growth of women's racing? In that, you know, that the 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 scene in general, uh, the infrastructure of the scene and the audience is not quite ready to go to dive straight into a women's welter in May yet. Is it is is are things happening too fast? I mean, this has been one of the criticisms, hasn't it, that there's not enough money to support the riders, that the that the, the calendar's now expanded too fast. 
Um, is is this something that really applies here? I think absolutely, yes. I mean, you only need to look at the teams and the squad sizes are still only 14 to 16 to 17 riders. Compare that to a men's world tour team and they have up to 30 riders. So they're working with half the amount of riders, but the same amount of world tour race days. So it's just not plausible that each rider can go into each race hoping to win or hoping to have a good show. You know, they, they are obviously riding some races just because they have to. Now, obviously, this weekend, we will have a spectacular mountain showdown. And it will probably be Van Vluten v Vollering, which will be exciting and it will be good bike racing. But it just feels like it's taking place at a level far below what we will be seeing at the Tour in July. And I think going forward, this is a real issue that the UCI and the Women's World Tour need to address because while the level of women's cycling is vastly improving and vastly increasing, that base still needs to increase until we get a level that matches the Men's World Tour. So you caught up with Tim Harris, didn't you? Can you explain his his role and how he's involved with the Women's Volta? Yes, so Tim Harris is the sports director of EF Education, uh, typical Civ. And Tim was really complimentary of the race route. You know, he said there's a team time trial, there were windy stages, there were sprint stages. Obviously, Mariana Voss has won most of them, and then the final three days are mountain stages. So he has no concerns about the route. And actually, he's quite excited about the race going forward because it, it harks back to a time long before... I was even born when the Vuelta came before the Giro and then the Tour. Well, you were born yesterday, weren't you? <laughs> let's listen. Let's bad joke. Let's listen to what Tim Harris has to say here. They've got the same infrastructure now that the men used in the Vuelta, and I think um, okay for younger listeners, they probably won't know that the men's Vuelta used to be in April, May. So this would have been the first week of the old men's Vuelta that always started now. And it used to go well to zero tour. So, I mean, really, now with this, and they're obviously putting a lot of effort and money into this. And now with the zero being bought by RCS, then I think uh, um, it's going to just go the way of, of like you say, three grand tours. Which, uh, and then we have a season which is not that dissimilar from the men in the fact that you have the classics. Uh, but then instead of the Giro, first of all, then then we'll have the Volta like the, the men used to be. So then it will we'll just be Volta Giro Tour, which uh, is is, uh, yeah, is a good thing. Pete, what's your feeling about this race? Because I, I've I've been a bit underwhelmed, if I'm honest. It, it feels a bit like the first Tour de France fam or, or the, re, the rejuvenated, re, reborn Tour de France fam in the sense that the few opening stages haven't, been that gripping there's not been really an awful lot happening and we're just waiting to reach the mountains well i i see i see two things here i think one of the things that's um been interesting about racing in the last few years is that um we've become accustomed to be it being like full-on every day at, at, at big stage races and i mean that's a new thing and i mean if you if you look back kind of before five years ago there would have been stages like this at all the Grand Tours or, or, or spaces of time within a within a big race where the action was a bit a little bit less low key. There wasn't so much focus on the overall classification in terms of what was going to happen in the in the long term, who was going to win the race overall. I mean, I think the racing's actually been pretty good. And I'm I'm kind of the the other thing I I like about this race is the fact that the organisers have placed it in a part of the calendar where there was a space. There was the, the, the calendar is very cluttered, but there was a space 
sitting in between the classics and the start of the men's Giro that was empty. And I think they've they've made a good move in um, in, in selecting this this part of the calendar because all right, it's only the first edition. Maybe people aren't that interested at the moment. But I think in the long term, this is this move will pay off for them. That it will be a they will get an audience. That it will kind of f- filling this space will mean that that people will be watching the classics. They'll be watching the tour of Romandie. Then they'll watch the the Vuelta Femenina. Then they'll start going into the Giro. And there is this year round desire for. For, for competition on every day. I mean, it's almost we almost get to the point now where if if there there are days when there isn't any racing, you you you're kind of missing it. And so I think for for these reasons, the the Vuelta maybe maybe it's not having the impact that um, we'd hoped for initially. But I think in the longer term that it will. Well, I guess those are all fair points, and obviously the Tour de France fam has an advantage when it was reborn last year because it comes on the back of the men's race and uh you know the tour de france is the is the global brand so there you go and there you have it that's our first episode done and dusted phew so big thanks to pete and chris and to producer will and of course to our partners at sigma sports where don't forget you can find everything you need from a new road bike to a wardrobe refresh at sigma sports you get the products you want from the brands you love With fast shipping, easy returns and industry-leading customer service, shop in-store or online at sigmasports.com. That's our first ever 30 minutes. Done. World, do your worst. We will be back early next week to bring you more of the latest news and opinion from the Giro and elsewhere in world cycling. But for now, grazie and ciao.